I was excited about the idea of moving to Queens because I didn't really have connection to the Chinese community. And so there are a lot of different immigrant communities here. And I wanted to be more connected to that. In this particular area I live in, there's not actually a big Chinese community, but there's a whole lot of other immigrant communities. Yeah, I really found it to be an enriching experience for me and also for raising my daughter, I feel... Towards a Kinder Public, a podcast exploring issues in public space and ways to design kinder space that better meets our interconnected needs. I'm Kevin Castle, and along with Annie Chen, we are Kinder Public. Our guest is Dave Liao, who is Chinese-American, a dad, and a web designer who has been working from home for many years. He is an expert on navigating the city as a dad with a small child. Dave lives with his family in Queens, New York, in what is certainly one of the most vibrant and diverse urban areas of the world. This interview will be shared in two parts, and we really encourage tuning in for both of them. The conversation is personal and highlights important themes about inclusion to improve the accessibility of public space. Listening to this episode is one active step you can take to support that value wherever you are. In this first portion of the interview, we will talk about Dave running the New York City Marathon, being Chinese-American, and parenting a small child while working from home. There are also some classic New York stories. We feel so fortunate to introduce you now to Dave Liao and share this interview with you. I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, Dave. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. You have a really important area of expertise when it comes to the accessibility of public space. I'm excited to talk to you about your experiences as a dad with a small child in New York City. To help orient everyone, our families have been friends for around eight years. We met when we had kids that were two or so years old. So when I talk about the amazing way that you and your wife, Jean, have balanced parenting responsibilities and my awareness that you have a particular expertise in navigating public space with a small child. I'm referencing a period of time that extends to pre-COVID circumstances and routines. Your role in caregiving was very intentional and took place over an extended period of time. But first, I would like to ask you about recently running the New York Marathon. During your run, you were fundraising for the Museum of Chinese in America. Congratulations on that achievement. Thank you so much. Can you talk about your personal background and inspiration to run and fundraising for the museum? Sure. Well, I guess my personal background in terms of running is um, that I had very little experience running. I had um, maybe 10 years ago before I did this, I ran a 10K with no train, very little training, and it was rough. And then I just didn't run after that. And then and then over the pandemic, I was definitely thinking about my health more and thinking about fitness. One of the great things about the pandemic, I guess if you're looking for good things, uh, was that the streets were completely abandoned, you know, during the height of the pandemic. And in the city, that's very 
uh, a very unique experience. And so I I uh, was very uh, fortunate to take advantage of that and go. Uh, I would go bike riding. Yeah, so I really was biking more and and doing a lot of trying to be more active and and exercising more. So uh, because of this more recent attempt to be more connected to my fitness, I think I started to get more confidence about trying to run again. And so I ran a 5K in, back in May last year, and I didn't train for that at all. I did a practice run like four days before it, and, and then I just ran it. And it was, and I felt uh, this was really, really hard, but I felt like I, I felt like it was a nice accomplishment given all the things that we've been through. And then about like maybe less than a week later after I did it, um, I got an email from a Museum of Chinese in America and, you know, it's just a general newsletter email asking folks to to participate in the marathon on their behalf. And I thought it was maybe it was an omen or something because I thought, oh, this is uh, what I need to motivate me to keep running. You know, I never thought about running a marathon. And so I thought they make it sound like it's possible. So in their email, they're sort of like, even if you never really ran that much, you could do it. You could, you know, you could follow a train schedule. So and they made it seem a lot easier than it actually was. It was really, it was really ridiculously <laughs> hard, um, especially especially when you're when you're not young and you have a family, you you have your job and stuff like that. So training does require a lot of time and commitment. So it was really hard, but I really did um, appreciate the experience and and felt it really valuable. And when I look back, I wish that I would have pursued it earlier because it just I feel like it just adds a whole lot of value to my everyday experience in terms of uh, how I think about you know getting through goals or or um, or or my health. You know, the biggest thing I think it taught me is that you need to have balance in your life uh, because in order to run that level of distance 26.2 miles you have to have like you can run two miles with poor form and get away with it but to run that long for and for me it was a very long time because i ran very slowly you have to have good form and balance throughout the whole time so you know marathons are often used as metaphors for life and it definitely uh holds true i feel you have to like make sure you keep yourself balanced make sure you're 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 not trying to overcompensate. What I learned is that during my training, I got injured. I had a knee injury because um, I had overtrained. And part of the reason I overtrained is because when I started to hit longer distances, I would hit varying levels of terrain, which I thought I had to like adapt and, and change the way I ran a little bit. So I had to like, oh, I thought I had to lean to one side if I was like running along a slopey kind of road. And you're supposed to sort of just keep your body overall balanced and not uh, try to overcompensate by doing something else. Like I would try to, I would just like try to do weird things to try to overcompensate, but that ended up uh, causing more injury. And also in the repetition of that, because there's such an extreme level of, of repetition when you run long distances that uh, it just really created a high risk for all kinds of injuries. So I was injured during training like two weeks before the marathon started. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'm not going to be able to make it. So I stopped running two weeks before I stopped my training and just did other types of training. And then 
I did a lot of research on like how to run so that I wouldn't get injured. And so I think that really helped me a lot. And I actually did, did run the marathon. So, but I ran it very slowly to prevent injury and also tried to make sure that I practice balance of form. So at the end, I felt like it was grueling, but I was, uh, I was able to leave without further injury. So that's what I was like really excited about, even though it took me like the whole day to run that thing. I never wanted to run after that, after I finished that. But yeah, so that was uh, my running experience. And then the reason I did it for the Museum of Chinese America was one, it was the invitation, but the, the reason I was sort of inspired in that moment also was that this was at a time where, you know, we were all aware that Chinese in America were facing a lot of backlash and there was a lot of concern about the perception of Chinese in America. So um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, you could post, I could post on, on social media and say, uh, stop Asian hate and things like that. But I do feel like a long-term solution is to encourage education about Chinese culture and experiences in America. And so I thought this is, uh, you know, a great opportunity to support an organization that does do that. And so they're going to be able to, to create that focus uh, for the long term, for many generations to come. So I thought this was a more effective use of of um, of my support. So yeah, and so and my background personally is that I am Chinese American. I was born and raised here in New York, and not New York City, but uh, Westchester, New York. And you know, so I definitely have yeah con a connection to that experience. And and I never really thought about that experience too much prior to this doing the marathon for the Chinese in America. It, it offered a lot of opportunity to reflect on that. And the biggest struggle is that you have this dual, I guess, sense of self. You have this sense that I'm American. I have the American experience. I don't really identify with the Chinese culture or, you know, the Chinese community in general. So, but I am Chinese and I very I'm very visually Chinese. So throughout my life, I've, I've experienced what it's like to be Chinese Mm -hmm. In that sense, people often ask me, like, they expect that I know a lot about Chinese culture and, and I don't. I, I'm like the worst at it. So I've always had that little bit of that struggle. I've tried to compensate a lot of times when I engage somebody new that, you know, I think it's changed a lot um, since when I was younger. But when I was younger, uh, people often had a lot of expectations when they would meet me for the first time. Mm. So I'd often find myself overcompensating by, you know, trying to reassure them that I, you know, I speak English, I, I am American, I have very shared, if I'm, you know, speaking to other Americans that of other nationalities or races, you know, that I had a, right. the same kind of mindset as they do. Could I ask you quickly, I think you already mentioned one, but the kinds of expectations that people would have when they met you that you spoke another language. I think you also mentioned that you had a certain amount of awareness of Chinese culture and that it might be in equal proportion or greater proportion to your awareness of American culture. What were the kinds of expectations that people approached you with that you felt you needed to immediately flip? Um, Did I just name them all? <laughs> in listening <laughs> to you, I heard those. Well, certainly language was one of them like uh, you know sometimes i would get a comment like oh your english is really really good or something like that yeah um and you know it's sort of like 
it's unusual for me to hear because I'm like, well, I was born here. So. <laughs> You're like, I grew up in Westchester. So. <laughs> it wasn't much of an accomplishment for me. Um, yeah. So I, uh, so that there's, um, I guess a lot of times it's also like a lot of people is like an awkward moment sometimes in conversations when there were, were when the, when the um, subject matter is revolves around Asian-ness or Asian culture or Asian perspective. And then I would be looked on to, you know, people would just give you the look and say, you know, well, what do you think about that? You know, and mm. as if I have a different perspective on, on something, because I have like, like there's this assumption that I have more of a connection to um, the Chinese or Asian uh, community or, or culture. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. And that is frustrating because I do wish I had more of a connection to uh, the Asian community and to um, Asian culture. I mean, my family was, you know, I was raised by a family of immigrants, so they, they did have that culture in their lives and that was part of their lives. And that was a little bit part of my life through them, but I never really felt truly connected or fully understood it. And I have very limited Chinese speaking ability. So uh, it's almost like baby level. And so um, I'm not really able to uh, have conversations with other Chinese people who are native speakers. So yeah, I, it's sort of something I'm not sure I felt like I kind of longed for, but at the same time, I now as I get older, I feel like I kind of wish that that I would just embrace the culture that I was a part of, rather than trying to long for a culture that I felt like I should have been a part of because of my skin. Mm -hmm. And because I was always treated in a way that I should be part of that culture or something, but I wasn't. Um, yeah. Sometimes the expectation would be that not only might I be uh, Chinese or have a Chinese experience, but I might be from somewhere else um, because of my appearance. So a lot of times people, I think, had the expectation that I'm from somewhere else because I look like I'm from somewhere else. Um, and that's very frustrating because, you know, you get treated certainly as if you, you were an outsider even if you lived in that place your whole life so you know so you know being from new york and i've lived here you know and experienced new york my whole life but a lot of times i'd be in situations where people would not be sure about me because they would think that i was from another country or something like that so i definitely felt like uh, i was being treated differently for that reason and then you know, and then again, you, that's why you'd find me or I'd find myself overcompensating to reassure people that I am not from somewhere else. So I know the circumstances regarding this situation. And so, you know, you don't have to worry about educating me about, you know, cultural practices or things like that. Yeah, that's really important. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's helpful to know what we're doing. You know, I think that some people just don't realize and some people do. <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it i think it takes you know awareness doesn't happen overnight people have to have experience i'm i'm certainly guilty of of perceiving things with limited uh insight in, into other people's situations um you know i make the same assumptions about other races and things like that um and so it takes experience to be able to fully understand that these other experiences exist. Part of the reason that 
I moved to the city was the allure of this idea that I would be exposed to a lot of different experiences, a lot of different types of people. When I first moved to Brooklyn, there's just so many different types of people you meet. And I was very excited to meet different types of people with different perspectives. Um, I grew up in the suburbs. And so I felt like the perspectives were kind of limiting. Like I kind of knew automatically how a lot of people thought about the way things are. And, you know, and if people had varying perspectives on things, they didn't really share it in that kind of community because it was kind of, you know, to be perceived as different was um, kind of uh, frowned upon, I guess. I think things have evolved a lot since then. But but moving to the city, I was like able to just meet a, a lot more different types of people and uh, different types of perspectives and having different types of experiences. It was almost silly how much I longed for this because one time I, I went to an interview for an apartment and uh, the guy interviewing me, which we became roommates, was gay. And he, you know, when he he shared that fact in the interview and, you know, I didn't really know a lot of gay people growing up or I actually look back and I think I did. I just didn't know that they were gay. When he shared that, I almost blurted out, oh, I'm so you know excited to be having that experience living with a gay person or something like that. Um, <laughs> You're like, great. It's perfect. <laughs> but then I thought, I'm not going to say that. That's going to come off really weird. Um, yeah. So uh, but, you know, that, that's also the reason that I um, I really wanted to was excited about the idea of moving to Queens because I didn't really have a connection to the Chinese community. And so there are a lot of different immigrant communities here. And I wanted to be more um, connected to that. In this particular area I live in, there's not actually a big Chinese community, but there's a whole lot of other immigrant communities. And so, yeah, I really found it to be an enriching experience for me and also for raising my daughter, I feel having grown up in the suburbs, I felt like, oh, I really missed out on seeing other people who are like me and, you know, going through the same types of things that I was going through. I was like probably one of two other Chinese, you know, two Chinese kids in my school. But my daughter is has a very different experience. She goes to school with a lot of kids who are Americans, but they they come from immigrant families. So they all have a lot of different faces. Um and experiences. And so, you know, I definitely see that how her perspective on the world is very different from my perspective on the world at the, you know, when I was her age. Yeah, hopefully that pans out to be something very positive in her life mm -hmm. and for the for those around her. Mm -hmm. I really agree with that. And I think as someone who also had a suburban upbringing, I felt it was very confining because for the most part, there was an expectation of conformity at that time. I remember when I moved to the city feeling like I could really breathe for one of the first times in my life, and I wasn't preoccupied with what I looked like to the neighbors. It was obvious people had a lot of different ideas, so I could rearrange that and instead be really curious about what the neighbors were thinking and what they were doing, but in a positive way. And that was such a helpful reframe for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um... I definitely know what you mean. I feel that's what I love about the city. I feel like it gives you a lot of opportunities to be open to new experiences, to to really feel comfortable to explore 
and and your community and to and other people around you at the same time you have a you have the safety of anonymity because there's so many people around you don't feel the pressure of if i do make a mistake the whole community is going to know it and they're going to start sharing stories about me or mm-hmm. something like that where that's what i kind of felt like when i was in the suburbs you felt like you didn't want to engage because you were concerned how the neighbors would would look at you you'd be you don't want to you didn't want to be part of that type of drama or something like that uh whereas in the city it's just it's just dramatic every day and and you just we're just sort of bumping into each other all the time so mm-hmm. there's less of um that pressure of of having to conform or you just see everybody's everybody's exposed for who they are and you see that diversity very transparently so yeah then you can feel more comfortable about being yourself because you're you're saying okay i'm exposed to so much uh, so many different personalities and there and you know there's nothing to hide here as much mm-hmm. and so yeah that's 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 been a great thing yeah i love that <laughs> i really appreciate you sharing all of those ideas in your openness. Thank you. Thank you for letting me, giving me the opportunity to do that. I also want to talk to you about your perspective of being a dad in the city and how public space works for you. So this has just been an amazing conversation and I don't want to transition before we're ready. Uh. But could I ask you to share a little bit about your professional background and your business and the work that you do? And that information will help frame the picture of your day as a parent. Sure. So I'm a web designer. I'm a freelance web designer. I've been working from home for the past 15 years. And and before that, I was more of a print designer. I In the corporate world, I was designing uh, booklets and presentations and things that would be printed on paper and, and distributed. Uh, so when I started my own business, Offbeat Design, it was more focused on print design and design in general. I was more interested in making things look aesthetically nice and and professional. And But I started around 2008. So a lot of people didn't have a website. And so that's what their, that's where the need was. And so a lot of clients asked me, do I do websites? And I wanted the business. So I was just starting out. So I said, yes. And, you know, I, I, so I had to learn, um, how to make websites, how to code. And, and at that time, there, you know, there was a lot of development happening, but the resources for, for learning about it were you really had to do your own research. Mm-hmm. There was a lot to learn. So once that started happening, I sort of made web design my focus because it just was, it just required a lot more than print design because print design, you, 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 you design something like an image and then it gets printed and then you're done. You don't have to go back and do anything where a website, you have to, you have to build it and make sure it works. And then it's just, it's kind of a living thing on the web. And so you just constantly, it's constantly evolving and, and needing maintenance. So yeah, the only downside I would say about going that direction is that I, I really do like designing and, and making things. I, and making things with my my visual experience. So having to do websites is more of a technical, has become more of a technical challenge. And um, I find myself often uh, dealing with a lot of technical issues, which I'm not super excited about, but you know, I could, I know how to do it. And so I am proud of that. But so I've been doing it mostly for 
uh, all kinds of different uh, clients um, from when I started, it was a lot of individuals and small businesses. And then started to, um, I guess, when my credibility improved, then I was working with more corporate clients and organizations, uh, nonprofits. Um, when you're freelancing, you're, you get to work with a lot of different types of clients. You don't really have a boss. So you're, you're meeting all these people, you know, one-to-one and you're, you're learning about their industries and you're learning about different types of personalities that, that deal with those types of industries. Uh, so yeah, it's been a very interesting process. One of my memorable experiences was did a website for um, early on was I did a website for this uh, violinist and he he said I can't pay you with a check or a credit card because I'm, I'm like an artist so I um, I don't have like a bank account or something so if you can meet me I can give you cash for your services and so <clears throat> he said okay sure I, I met him in uh, um, in Midtown and then he said, oh, okay, meet me like on 42nd and street. And so Times Square. And so I said, I, okay, I'm going to meet you at Times Square. And then we were texting, you know, for location. And then he's like, oh, I'm down in the subway. And I said, okay, this is unusual. I'll, I'm going to meet. I never met anybody in the subway, like <laughs> underground. Right. So and I went down underground and then there he was, he was playing in Times Square and he had a huge crowd around him and he's playing like this uh, electric guitar violin and he had a violin case or something that was just collecting money uh, from people. And then after, so I just stood there and I enjoyed his set. And then when he finished um, the crowd dispersed and he greeted me and it was unusual to like get greeted by the person that's performing in the subway on a personal level. And then he said, hi, how are you doing? He's like, yeah, I have your money right here. And he reached into that the violin case and he just pulled out a wad of, of bills and he just handed it to me. And I I just thought this is this must if somebody's like watching this, this is probably kind of an unusual <laughs> thing to see. Like this guy just walks over and this the, the street artist is handing him his earnings. And so, yeah, when you sort of put yourself out there, you get into all kinds of interesting experiences. Um, and so, yeah, that was one of my favorites. So when our families met about eight years ago, we were all living in a very neighborly and walkable area in Queens, where you still live, and you were working primarily from home and your spouse was working primarily outside the home. Would it be correct to say that you had the role of primary caregiver during the week? And can you talk about the kinds of things you did with your child and give an example of what your day looked like? Um, yeah, yeah, that's all kind of true. Um, I definitely w- was the primary caregiver. And my wife, she always felt really bad about this. She always felt like, um, I just want to say that she wanted to be more of that. But, you know, because she had but she had a full time job and, and she had to go to the office. So she really uh, regretted not being able to do more in that area. But, you know, it was, it just worked out that way because I, I was working from home. So it, I definitely saw value in having that opportunity. And uh, I, I would say early on, you know, the early days of a baby, I would just be watching her by myself while I was working. I often had her strapped to my chest while I was uh, working at the computer. Mm-hmm. I remember when I would, this is the er- more early days of doing remote meetings this is i guess before zoom became popular and so i was just doing a phone call i was talking to a group of people in a meeting room in their offices 
and I was um, talking and usually I had her strapped to my chest and she'd be sleeping or she'd be very quiet, but she's not used to me just talking a lot to her. When I am talking to her, she expects to talk back because, you know, we're having a conversation. Right. Um, so, but usually if I'm just working, I'm not talking. I didn't think about this, but I had her strapped to my chest during this meeting. And so, of course, when I started talking, I had an earpiece and a microphone and the microphone was perfectly positioned like right over her head. And so, <laughs> you know, then she immediately would start bab babbling very clearly to the um, and it was a it was kind of like a pitch meeting. It was like, uh, let me tell you about how I can offer this my services to your business kind of meeting. Mm -hmm. And it worked out because they were very sympathetic, thankfully. Uh, to the situation and and they always reflect upon that experience every time we have a meeting they say oh remember that time you had that baby strapped to your chest and she was like talking on yeah. our meeting that was really funny yeah so uh, yeah so there were a lot of challenges um i'd say working from home and raising a, a small child um i get a lot of guilt because when i'm working and she's around i feel like i should be attending to her and stimulate, you know, giving her stimulating activities, engaging her. Yeah, it was very challenging in that way, especially we would hire babysitters to come watch her while I was working and, and they would be in the house. So I didn't really have to, we didn't have to be that concerned about hiring a super sitter. We just had to, because I was around, mm -hmm. so I could always uh, provide support. Unfortunately, that was not a great idea because I would always see an opportunity to be supportive. So I just always, I'd just be like the babysitter assistant, basically. Assistant. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So I found it, it was kind of challenging to get work done because I'd always kind of be distracted and, and want to, because you, you know, sometimes you want to give the, you have this guilt that you want to give your child the best care. And so if you see the babysitter, mm -hmm. you know, doing something and you're like, oh, I think I could, help and then mm -hmm. you know i really wish that i had learned to like set limits on myself and just say okay you just gotta trust this person to do whatever they're doing and it'll be okay you know so you were working from home you had help sometimes and then you were sort of alternating between activities with your child and work is that correct yeah yeah and and the challenging thing is the i guess when i'm still thinking about the baby phase or the infant phase is like their schedules are very inconvenient to a working schedule so it goes back to balance again because the biggest thing about a young child who's like one one-ish is like is sleeping right mm -hmm. they have to take naps and they take a lot of naps and you don't want to over nap because then they they can't sleep at night and then they drive you nuts and you mm -hmm. don't get sleep but and you might still be working right because your work day has expanded to an 18 hour <laughs> yeah, day yeah precisely uh yeah that's kind of one of the plus and minuses of freelancing is that you have very flexible hours I found it a huge struggle to try to keep that balance of trying to make sure that her needs are being met and my needs are being met mm -hmm. with work. It just was such a physical toll uh, raising a small child. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember just like uh, when she would have trouble sleeping, I'd try to find all kinds of ways to try to, you know, encourage her to nap, to get into the rest mode. The, what I found worked the best was to have her strapped to my chest. In a baby carrier? Yeah, yeah, I felt like that was the most soothing for her. Mm -hmm. And 
that was so a lot of times, you know, I just remember I just constantly have her on my chest when it gets close to that, that time for her to take a nap. And what they say now is that you should sleep when your kid sleeps, right? Mm -hmm. So I did kind of have that flexibility. And I do remember like a lot of times I just fall asleep with her on my chest, but it was never like comfortable for me because I'd be like sleeping on a table because I'd had to be sleeping with her on my chest. So I couldn't just like um, just lay comfortably in a bed or something. Sometimes it was just be like wherever I was mm -hmm. on a bench or a table, very uncomfortably. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, like I said, it was very physical. Um, mm -hmm. with, so I definitely empathize with all parents as they struggle going through this process. I would say as a, as a dad, I feel like that there's a little advantage for men because we usually tend to have more upper body strength. And I feel that's really required a lot of times for convenience sake. I feel like I, I probably had a lot more flexibility because of course this is different for everybody. But, but you know, whenever I, I would travel with her, I would always have the option to carry her on my shoulders or on my in my arms. And sometimes you'd have to carry them for a very a long time. You know, it could become very strenuous on your body. And so, yeah, I found it very, very physically challenging. And I, I even remember getting injuries because I probably didn't take care of myself that well. And so I get knee injuries and, and back injuries because you become this vessel for this child. And so you just don't think about yourself too much. You know, you just sort of, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm just the donkey and, and, you know, whatever they need, right. they just throw it on me and. <laughs> Subscribe to Towards a Kinder Public on your favorite podcast player, and please leave us a rating and a review. It helps increase the visibility of our message, and we really appreciate your support and feedback. To share information about issues in public space and spaces or businesses that are doing things right, email podcast at kinderpublic.com. Links to more information about the guest and topics mentioned, as well as a full transcript of the conversation, are available on the podcast section of our website, kinderpublic.com. Visit our website to also learn more about our work. I'm Kevin Castle. Our guest this week has been Dave Liao. Look for part two of this conversation next week. <laughs>